Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Greg Laurie Podcast, a ministry supported by Harvest Partners. I'm Greg Laurie, encouraging you. If you want to find out more about Harvest Ministries and learn more about how to become a Harvest Partner, just go to harvest.org. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Lord, we're glad to be together in your house, worshiping the Lord. Now we pray that you will bless this time as we open your word and learn more about you. Learn how to resist temptation. Learn how to walk with you. So bless this time of Bible study, we pray now. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. You can all be seated. Good morning to Harvest Riverside. Harvest Kumalani on the beautiful island of Maui and all of you watching that Harvest at home and of course here at Harvest Orange County. Welcome to church. So as it has been said, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So I was just back in Washington, D.C. on Friday. I just flew back yesterday, and boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> Get it? I just flew back, my arms are It's a joke, people, okay. So um, I was privileged to uh, do a prayer and share a few words at this massive March for Life event it's been held for many years now. There was probably more than 100,000 people there. And it was just amazing. Just amazing. So here's a few photos. I, there were so many young people from all around. Those are my granddaughters, Lucy, Riley, Kathy, my wife in the middle, uh, Allie, and my daughter-in-law, Brittany. They were all there marching at the March for Life. And this is uh, just so many young people from all around the country. And they call themselves the, uh, this, oh, we said hello to former Vice President Mike Pence in his office. So there we all are standing there in the nice warm little room before we went out into the very cold snow. Professional NFL football player, uh, Benjamin there, had the opportunity to speak with him. He spoke as well. There are the girls out in the snow. The snow is just amazing. Look at Kathy on the left. She looks like a model. Look at her with a, and there we all are standing together. It was just fantastic time. And uh, that should probably be our Christmas card next year. I don't know. I was arrested briefly. Um, and uh, that's where I was actually praying at the event. And so I saw this as an opportunity to, to not only stand with those that stand for the unborn, but also to share the gospel. Uh, with the folks as well. So here's a little video clip of, uh, of what it was like back there. Check this out. Well, here we are at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. It's snowy. It's beautiful, though, actually. And I've got my granddaughter, Lucy, my granddaughter, Riley, my wife, Kathy, my daughter-in-law, Brittany, and my granddaughter, Allie. They've all got their little signs. Check out their signs. So we're all out here with hundreds of thousands of people from all around the nation and even the world speaking up for those that can't speak up for themselves. Please join me in welcoming two very special guests. Pastor Greg Laurie and Kathy Laurie, who inspired the movie Jesus Revolution. I'm so proud of all of you coming out on this very cold, snowy day in our nation's capital to speak for those who have no voice. 
Let me pray for you now. Lord, thank you for every man and woman, every boy and girl here today. Many came from a great distance to our nation's capital to speak up for the unborn. We pray for our nation. We pray for young women who find themselves pregnant that they would carry these babies to term and raise them up or put them up for adoption. We pray that we as believers, the church, would be there to support these mothers. We pray that you would raise up godly people in our government, in the Congress, in the Senate, in the White House, as well as local government officials who would stand for the unborn. You tell us in your word when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Lord, we pray for a great spiritual awakening to sweep the United States of America. We need another revival. We're all separated from God by our sin. But God loved us so much that 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin, and then He rose again from the dead. And if we will turn from our sin and invite Christ into our life, we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. Right. So I did a little gospel presentation and I said, if you want to accept Jesus Christ, why don't you pray this prayer with me right now? And then I said, in fact, why don't we all pray it together? Thousands and thousands of people are praying this prayer of asking Jesus to come into their life. I think I'm gonna run into someone, maybe more than one, one day that will say, I was one of those people that prayed that prayer and gave my life to Jesus Christ on that snowy day in Washington, D.C. at the March for Life event. So we'll see. <laughs> All right, well, who wants to have a Bible study? Raise your hand up. Oh, you came to the right place. We're gonna do that. So grab your Bible, hang a hard left. Go all the way to the first book of the Bible. That would be the book of Genesis. And the title of my message is God's Solution to Man's Problem. Have you ever noticed on certain products there's a warning label? Warning you to not do a certain thing? I came across what could best be described as wacky warning labels. They're real, but maybe they've gone a little bit too far. As an example, this is a real warning label on a baby stroller. Warning, remove child before folding. <laughs> that means somewhere, someone folded the stroller with the baby inside still. A warning on a brass fishing lure with a three-pronged hook on the end, harmful if swallowed. I think that's true of the fish. I hope a human didn't uh, swallow it. A flushable toilet brush warns not to be used for personal hygiene. Oh, gross. A can of self-defense pepper spray warns users may irritate eyes. That was kind of the plan. If I'm gonna spray someone, I hope it irritates their eyes. A popular manufacturer of a fireplace log warns caution, risk of fire. I was hoping for that. Uh, on a chainsaw, this is a real warning on a chainsaw. Warning, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. That's good advice. Warning on a hairdryer, do not use while sleeping. How do you use a hairdryer while you're sleeping? Well, someone apparently has done it. And one more, well, actually two more. Warning, this Superman costume does not enable you to fly. 
Oh, great. So someone <laughs> thought they could just jump off the roof because they were wearing that costume. Here's another one. It says, warning, never try to catch a falling knife. Yeah, that's a good idea. You drop a knife, let it hit the ground. Oh, well, catch it. No, don't, don't. And then one final one. And I should have heeded this one because I, I didn't listen to this warning. Warning on a household iron. Never iron clothes while they're being worn. I have ironed clothes while wearing them. Has anybody else done this? Raise your hand if you have. So, you know, you get everything ironed and you look in the mirror and there's one little wrinkle. I'll just iron it. Well, what I did was even worse because I have a heavy duty steam iron. I mean, this is a next level steam iron. It has a base, a reservoir, water. It's nuclear powered, okay? So when you fire a burst of steam, it's a like that. So I'm wearing, uh, two people just woke up, I noticed when I did that. So, Whoa, oh, so I'm wearing this shirt and I thought, oh, there's a wrinkle. I'll just blast it with steam. But I, I, I pulled it away from my skin. I'd be okay. And I gave it a blast of steam and I screamed like a little girl. <laughs> Later that night, I had my shirt off. Don't try to visualize that, please. And my wife looked at me with this red welt. She said, what happened to you? I said, don't ask. Okay, so... That's good advice. Well, you know, there's warning labels, if you will, in the Bible as well. Things that God tells us not to do and instead things that we should do in their place. Let me give an example. Someone says, happy is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. Those are things you should not do. But his or her delight is in the word of the Lord and in it do they meditate day and night. So don't do these things. Instead, do these things. Well, we're going to look here now at the very familiar story of our first parents sinning against God because they didn't listen to the warning label. That brings me to point number one. The theme of this message is what happens when we don't follow the warnings. So the Lord placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was literally paradise. They could eat of any tree. I mean, imagine God said, this is all yours to enjoy. You can eat of all of the fruit of the trees of the garden and behold the beauty I placed in it. One restriction. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that tree. Scene two, Adam and Eve standing at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one place God told them to stay away from, that's where they were. Already they're setting themselves up for trouble. They were in the wrong place and then they heard the wrong voice and then they did the wrong thing. So here they are standing by that tree and of course the devil comes and he tempts them. And uh, we see what happens when you don't listen to the warning. Genesis 3, 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and he gave to, she gave to her husband with her and he ate. That brings me to point number two. Every temptation in life fits into three categories. Three categories. Okay, so how many of you have ever been tempted to sin? Raise your hand up. You've been tempted to sin. Not every hand's going up. So some of you are apparently untemptable. Uh, how many of you have given in to the temptation to sin? Raise your hand up. More hands went up, which perplexes me, but whatever. Okay. So every sin that you've ever committed falls into one of three categories. And it's identified for us in 1 John 2, 15 to 16. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Every temptation is in one of those categories. First there's the lust of the flesh. Things that feel good. We read in Genesis 3, 16, when the woman saw the tree was good for food. It feels good. The lust of the flesh would include temptations that are physical in nature. Whatever appeals to you. You're drawn to that thing. It's the pleasures of life. Now, you can have legitimate pleasures in life as a Christian. The Bible even says, in his presence there are pleasures forevermore. But they're good pleasures, godly pleasures satisfied. But then there are ungodly pleasures, sinful things that we might pursue. The Bible even warns, she that lives for pleasure is dead while she is living. Okay, so that's the lust of the flesh. Then there's the lust of the eyes, things that look good. We read in Genesis 3, Eve saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. Most temptation comes through your mind first. You are the air traffic controller of your mind. You decide what thoughts are gonna be there and what thoughts are going to be rejected. But you'll find that most sins that people engage in, they think about first. They contemplate it first. They fantasize about it first, right? And so this is why we have to guard our thoughts and be careful about what we expose ourselves to. David fell into sexual sin when he was on his balcony looking around and he saw the beautiful Bathsheba bathing herself. Now he couldn't have seen the first thing, but it's that second look that gets you into trouble. Or maybe the super long first look, depending. And that is why Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look on a woman lustfully. So the lust of the eyes. And finally, there's a pride of life. Things that make you feel and look good. The devil says to them, go ahead and eat of this fruit. It's desirable to make one wise. And you'll be as a God, he says to Adam and Eve, knowing good and evil. Now it's not wrong to want to look good. Uh, you know, it's fine to want to give some attention to the way you appear. In fact, some of you should give more attention to that. <laughs> and I'm looking at you right now. No, I'm not actually, I'm not. But I'm thinking about it. No, I'm not. But, um, but then there are people that are obsessed with that. That's all they think about. You know, just by visiting their Instagram page, right? So here's the thing. We have to find the balance in all of these things. The pride of life is an obsession with self, wanting to appear more important than we are. This is what got Lucifer, once a high-ranking angel, ejected from his former position in heaven. And then he became Satan or the devil. He wanted to be worshiped. So these are the things we should stay away from. The world with its allure is the external foe. The flesh with its evil desires is the internal foe. And Satan with his enticements is the infernal foe. So now let's go back and look at this scene and look at what happened. So Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. Now sin has entered the world. So here comes the Lord walking through the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter three, verse 10. And God calls out, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you gave me. She gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right, we'll stop there. Point number three, Adam blamed God for what he had done. He blamed God for what he had done. I mean, what happened to the Adam that said of Eve after she was created, this is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now it's like, she did it. <laughs> like, you know, he, he's like literally throwing Eve under the bus and he's driving the bus over her a couple of times. We do the same thing. It's not my fault. I'm not responsible. That person trapped me. This person enticed me. I have no responsibility at all. But in a way, Adam was blaming God. It's the woman you gave me. Adam's effectively saying, hey, I'm taking a nap. I wake up, a rib's missing, and she's here. <laughs> it's all her fault. But then Eve, <laughs> she says, a serpent beguiled me. Let me update that. The devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. The devil can tempt you. But you have to want what he's offering or it's not gonna happen. So she was responsible as well, though she was deceived by the devil. We play a role in our own temptation in sin. James 1.13 says, let no man say when he is tempted, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. We do a pretty good job of getting ourselves into trouble because we have a sinful nature. My next point, because of Adam's sin, we all suffer. Because of Adam's sin, we all suffer. But let me make this point. If you were in the garden, you would have done the same thing. And so would I. So it's easy to blame them, but, but this is just human nature, all right? But we're all affected by this decision he made. Romans 5:12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, and death spread to everyone, for everyone has sin. Death, illness, disability, age, all a result of the fall. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, we would never get sick. If Adam and Eve never sinned, we would never die. If Adam and Eve never sinned, I would have hair. You see? <laughs> it's all connected. We all share in this. Now let's see what happens after sin has entered the world. Go to Genesis chapter four. Starting in verse one, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. And when she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from the flock. The Lord accepted Abel in his gift, but he did not accept Cain in his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Then the Lord gives this ominous warning. You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out because sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Okay, we'll stop there. The book of Genesis can be divided into three sections. Chapters one and two, generation. 
Chapters three to 11, degeneration. Chapters 12 to 50, regeneration. In chapter three, we saw the beginning of man. In chapter four, we read of his progress and results as he sins against God. Bottom line, mankind wrecks everything he touches because we're sinful by nature. If history tells us anything, it tells us this. Man is not basically good. Man is basically bad. Bad to the bone. Sinful to the core. History is a space in which Cain's acts ultimately became thermonuclear weapons. We just take new technology and find ways to use it to make things even worse. And it's not the way it began. I mean, here's Adam and Eve. It, they're, they're having their first child. And they'd never seen a pregnancy before, and uh, much less a birth. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine a while ago, and he told me about his daughter's wedding. And he wanted to see something very profound, because he was performing the ceremony. So there she is standing with her groom, and, and he looks at her and he says, I was there when you were conceived. And he meant to say, I was there when you were born. Okay, so it's... <laughs> I mean, he was there when she was, but still, it's just not what you want to hear on your wedding day from your dad. But uh, that's, that's the way that went. When Adam and Eve were present for both conception and birth. Now, you wonder if Adam's thinking, what's happening to my beautiful wife, Eva, putting a little bit of weight on all of a sudden? Have you found like a high carb tree out there or something? Or why are you knitting those little socks? What's going on here? Well, she was gonna have a baby and she had her first child, Cain. And uh, then followed by Abel. And they both brought their offering one day. And God accepted the offering of Abel and he rejected the offer of Cain. Bringing me to point number five, being exposed to truth does not guarantee you will follow it. Cain and Abel were both raised in the same home. They, they both saw the same things, but one walked with God and one did not walk with God. One was a true worshiper and the other was not a true worshiper. One was accepted, accepted the other rejected. And this reminds us there's a right and wrong way to approach God. And it comes down to this, the why or the motive. Because as far as God is concerned, motive is everything. One day, we as Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment about whether or not you get to heaven. In fact, it's a judgment in heaven where rewards are given out for faithful service. And the Bible says God will test every man's work to see what sort it is. In other words, the why of what you did. Do so you think, well, if I have a beautiful voice and in worship I sing louder than everyone, that will be pleasing to God? Maybe and maybe not. Because if your heart's in the wrong place, it's not pleasing to God at all. And that person that's always off pitch may be more pleasing to the Lord than the person with the beautiful voice. Or when we receive an offering and one person gives a lot of money and another person doesn't give as much, God will be impressed by the motive of why the person did what they did. God looks on the heart. Bringing me to my next point, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. It's all about the heart. The why of why we do things. And so in the book of Isaiah, it says, God speaking, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
See, Abel was a true worshiper. His heart was in the right place. Cain was not. And we're given an insight as to what really happened in Hebrews 11 when it says, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Well, Cain was ticked off. Angry that God did not accept his sacrifice. In fact, in the word that is used for anger here in verse five means he burned with anger. Causing the Lord to even say, hey, everybody, calm down a little bit. You know, Why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? The fact is, Cain's true colors are beginning to show. The Lord is saying, hey, you need to not go this way because this is not gonna end well for you. Bring me to point number seven. God wanted confession because that's the only way to forgiveness. Well, why are you doing what you're doing? You don't want to do this. And Cain should have said, you're right. I'm overreacting. I'm sorry, Lord. I repent. But, but he's just angry. And he's justifying his own anger. It's a weird thing about anger, isn't it? How you can feel so right about it until the adrenaline wears off. Like when you're driving. And someone does some crazy thing. Right? They, uh, they offer a hand gesture in your direction and you just are so filled with rage or they cut you off or they you know, roll their window down and yell something, you know, and, and then you th- do something you regret later and uh, you need to just calm down. That was Cain, he was just losing it and God gives him this interesting warning in verse seven. Listen, you'll be accepted if you do what is right but if you refuse to do what's right, watch out. Sin is crouching at your door eager to control you but you must subdue it and be its master. The Lord's saying, Cain, you're flirting with disaster. Sin is like a crouching beast poised and ready to strike and ruin your life if you don't get control of it. I read a book a number of years ago called Death in the Long Grass. It was written by a big game hunter. He tells incredible stories of not only hunting lions but actually being hunted by them. Uh, there was a group of lions that got a taste for human blood and began hunting people. And one cat alone killed a hundred people. And they would come into these tented camps at night and sometimes step over several people and pick their prey and take them out and no one would even know what happened until the next morning. And, And a lion can move very quickly. Uh, they can move a lot through a lot of distance. So one charging lion can cover a hundred yards in three seconds. Okay, so I think this is interesting because the devil is not only compared to a snake; he's also compared to a lion. Over in First Peter five, we read, "Be self-controlled and alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone." to devour. Bringing me to my next point, the devil is always looking for trouble. He's looking for a life to ruin. Jesus said of Satan in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So we have to keep our guard up and be alert to this fact. There's an interesting passage in the book of Job where the angels of the Lord came and presented themselves before God and Lucifer was among them. And in Job 1.7, God says to Satan, where have you come from? And the devil answers, I've been going back and forth across the earth watching everything that's going on. He's just looking for a life to ruin, ready to pounce. 
One way that he can get a foothold in our life is when we're isolating ourselves from God's people. This is why we're told in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another daily and so much more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. So basically the author of Hebrews, some believe that's Paul, I don't know, but inspired by God nonetheless, whoever wrote it, is saying, hey, the Lord's coming back. Make sure that you're gathering with fellow Christians, encouraging one another, if necessary, correcting one another, because the Lord is coming soon. But some are not doing this. And so like when you watch one of those nature shows and you see the prey that the lions get, it's often the stragglers. You know, all the little antelopes are out there running together, and there's a one struggling antelope. The dum do dum do dum that, that's lunch for the lion. And, and lions don't like to expend energy unnecessarily. They'll just kind of lay there in the long grass and then they strike. And once they got their claws on that creature and then they bite into their neck, oh man, game over, okay? That's the devil, he's just watching. Oh, look at that straggler. Look at that person that isolates themselves from other Christians, always feeling sorry for themselves. That looks like a good prey to me. I'm gonna strike. So that's one way the devil can get a foothold in your life. And there's another way, and that is when we allow ourselves to be consumed by our anger like Cain was. Over in Ephesians 4.26 it says, don't sin by letting anger gain control over you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry for anger gives a mighty foothold to the devil. Let me ask you, are you filled with anger for someone right now? Well, Greg, they hurt me, okay. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone else. But if that anger is controlling your life, the person that's being hurt is you, not them. It's eating you up inside. And the Bible actually says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Because when you do, you give the devil a foothold. Bringing me to my next point. Sin is crouching at our doors too. He's ready to strike. He's looking for vulnerability. So we want to be careful and protect our homes from the power of the devil. Starting with this simple fact, I can't do this on my own. I need to pray and ask God to help me. And I wanna say a word to fathers and mothers out there. You need to protect your home in every way. I know you may have alarm systems and you put all your locks on and you've got everything right and that's fantastic, but also remember to have spiritual protection. Have a time where you get together with your family and have a meal together and get rid of the devices. No phones, no tablets, no TV playing in the background. Let's just talk to each other. Let's pray together. Let's read the Bible together. And men, I wanna say a word to you. You should be taking the initiative and leading in this area. Men need to be the spiritual leaders in their home, right? You can do this. You must do this. So, Cain didn't listen. And he was filled with envy. Envy's a tricky kind of a sin. Shakespeare called envy the green-eyed monster. Webster defines envy as a malignant or hostile feeling of ill will toward another. The funny thing about envy is we often envy those not people that we perceive as greater than us, but more like people we see as equal to us. 
Uh, envy has been described as a small town sin. It, it thrives on proximity. It breeds on proximity, I should say. In other words, I, I don't sit around and think, why can't I be as wealthy as Elon Musk? Or why can't I fill a stadium like Taylor Swift? And, uh, no, I'm more like, why does my neighbor have that and I don't have that? Why did my coworker get that raise and I didn't get that raise? Why did they get that opportunity and I don't get that opportunity? See, it, the, Victor Hugo said, quote, the wicked envy and hate, it is their way of admiring. So it's a thing that can start to consume us. I, I heard a story of a crab fisherman who was walking around with a pail full of crabs. Someone asked him, do you put a lid on that? No, I don't have to. Well, can't the crabs climb out? He goes, no problem. Because the moment one crab climbs out, the others reach up and pull him back down. <laughs> right? You know people like that. Oh, that's a great thing just happened to me and they want to pull you right back down. They don't want you to have that. That's envy and envy can consume you and that's what happened to Cain as well. So sin has now entered the world and Cain acts on this envy and this anger and you all know the story. He killed his brother Abel. Horrible thing. But God had a solution for Cain's sin and all our sin and that takes us back to Genesis chapter three. Because the Lord promised he was going to send a deliverer. After Eve and Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, the Lord made this profound statement. And this is the first messianic passage in the Bible. By messianic, I mean the first verse in the Bible that spoke of Jesus coming. And it's not what we would expect. We might think, well, it's Isaiah 9, 6. Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God. That's not the first one. Or maybe it's Isaiah 53 that vividly describes the suffering of the Messiah. No, that's not it. Well, maybe Psalm 22 uh, that begins with the words, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words Jesus cried from the cross. No, that's not the first one. The first messianic passage in the Bible is Genesis 3, 14 to 15. Let's look at it together. After Adam and Eve have sinned, the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you, will bru he, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the one. He will bruise your head and you will, and, uh, you will bruise his heel. So this is the Messiah. So here's what God is saying. Devil, I'm now putting you on notice. There is coming one who's gonna crush your head. But you'll bruise his heel. And sure enough, Satan struck out at Jesus. He thought he had the ultimate plan. I'll infiltrate their ranks, Lucifer thought. I'll get one of Jesus' very disciples to betray him. And he did. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. I'll make sure Jesus is uh, killed and murdered in cold blood on a Roman cross and that'll be the end of it. No, that was the fulfillment of it because Jesus came to die on the cross and he said so repeatedly. In fact, the Bible says of Jesus, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. What this means is before there was a solar system, before there was a planet called earth, before there was a garden called Eden, before there was a couple named Adam and Eve, 
a decision was made in the councils of eternity that God would send his own son, that God would walk among us as a man and live a perfect life and die a perfect death and rise again from the dead. This was the plan. And the devil didn't know it and actually in his weird way helped to bring the plan about. It blew up in his face. But once the devil knew Jesus was coming, he wanted to stop him. So we go to the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And we have the Jews multiplying in the land of Egypt under the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh sees him as a potential threat. And he gives a command to the Jewish midwives, I want you to drown those little Jewish baby boys. And of course those midwives refuse to do it. But he's trying to stop Messiah from coming. What is it with the devil always wanting to kill our children. We talk about abortion. Here is the Pharaoh saying, kill those baby boys. You know, with some people, abortion or women's reproductive rights, as they like to call it, is almost like a religion. They're passionate about it. That's the most important thing to them. And we simply say every child should have the right to live. Every child should be able to live their life and make their own choices in life, not for you to terminate the pregnancy as you like to say, but in reality, you're murdering an unborn child. But here's the devil doing it, back in the book of Exodus. Now we fast forward to the book of Esther. And there's an evil man that hatches a plot to destroy all the Jewish people. But thankfully God raised up a courageous young woman named Esther who was the queen and also was a Jew who stood up for her fellow Jews and saved them. But here's another thing we see that Satan hates. Not only unborn children, but Jewish people. Why this rise of anti-Semitism around the world? And we already saw the wicked and horrible attack of Hamas against the people of Israel, slaughtering 1,300 people. But now we see protests and rallies around the world with thousands of people chanting, gas the Jews. Where did that come from? It came from hell. It's devilish. But you see these things have gained prominence in the days in which we're living. When I was back in Washington, D.C. It's really quiet in here. Uh, When I was back in Washington, D.C. I know this is heavy stuff, but it's true. When I was in D.C., I, I met three Jewish gentlemen from Israel that work at the University of Haifa. And uh, we were talking about uh, Christians and Jews and and our relation together. And I think that they've become stronger in recent days than any other time. And, And I said to these men, I said, look, sometimes Christians are mischaracterized as to why we love the Jewish people and why we support the nation of Israel. Some would say, well, the reason we do it is because we just want Bible prophecy to be fulfilled and we want Jesus to come back again so we kind of hope a war starts. I said, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible tells us in Psalm 122 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I said, look, I believe that you guys being in your homeland is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 38. But having said that, The reason I care about Jewish people, I'm not Jewish, I'm a Gentile. But Jesus Christ changed my life. And when I asked him into my life, I started reading this book that came through your people. And it's a story of your people. And as I've studied this book and learned more about you, my love for you and for your nation has only grown. That's the reason that I support the Jewish people and I support the nation of Israel. 
I could go a lot longer on this topic and, and help dispel some mythology that you hear a lot, but I don't have time to do that right now. I'll do it another time. But, but then as we, we talked, one of the men said, you know, there's one good thing that has come despite this horrible event. I said, what is that? He says, we know who our true friends are. Not long ago, a lady was walking by my house, walking her dog, and, uh, and she said, I want to thank you. I said, oh, for what? She said, for the things you've posted about Israel. I said, oh, well, you're welcome. She says, I'm Jewish, and our daughter is in a university, and we've never been more frightened for her future. So thank you for standing for Israel and for the Jewish people. I said, hey, I'm happy to do that. So this is an opportunity for dialogue with our Jewish friends to tell them that he loves them and they're his chosen people and he has sent the Messiah for them. And I think there's a, a new dialogue that is opening up among us. But um, Satan wanted to stop Messiah from coming, but Satan failed. Even Herod, hearing that there was one born who was known as the king of the Jews, of course, slaughtered once again the little ones in Bethlehem. But he failed. And Jesus came and accomplished his mission and died on that cross for the sin of the world. As we close now, let me ask you this. Has sin been bringing havoc into your life? Is there some sin or some vice that has gotten a control of you? Remember what God said to Cain? You better master it or it's gonna master you. And the same is true for all of us. Now, I cannot master sin in my own power. I cannot overcome in my, uh, sin in my own strength. But through the power of God I can do it because greater is he that is in me and he that is in the world. All right? So take, take whatever issue you're dealing with, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever vice seems to have a permanent hold in your life. And I want to tell you something. God is bigger than that problem. He's bigger than that sin. He's bigger than that addiction. And you can overcome it through Jesus Christ. Okay, but keep something in mind. Don't unnecessarily put yourself in a place of vulnerability. Don't unnecessarily put yourself in a place where you could be pulled down. Where did Adam and Eve get tempted? At the place God told them to not be. So I cannot avoid the influence of culture in the world. It's everywhere, right? But if I'm on a diet, should I hang around at Krispy Kreme Donuts? <laughs> if I have a weakness in another area, should I be in a place where I could be more easily tempted, right? So make practical decisions. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man, but God who is faithful will not allow you to be tempted above your capacity to resist, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Let me just paraphrase that. There's always a way out of every temptation. There just is. Sometimes it's as simple as the door. Sometimes it's as simple as the off button. Press it. Sometimes it's as simple as terminating the conversation. But then instead of being in places of vulnerability, be in places where you're being built up like you are right now in church, worshiping together, hearing the word of God together. But sin is crouching at our door. We don't want to be overcome. And then there's some of us that might be green with envy over somebody else 
or what God is doing in their life or what they have or whatever it is. Don't, don't let that happen to you. Just to focus on your own walk and relationship with Christ. But let me close with this. Maybe I'm talking to somebody right now that doesn't have Jesus living in their life. Now I've talked about the devil. I want you to know that he's a powerful force and we are not his equal. And there's no way we can overcome him in our own strength. The only way to overcome him is through the power of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have Christ living in your life, my friend, you are a sitting duck with a bullseye on you. And that's why you need Jesus in your life. And Jesus died on that cross for your sin. He paid the price for every wrong that you have done. And he will forgive you of your sin if you'll turn from it and ask him to come into your life. So I wanna close by extending an invitation for anyone here that would like to ask Jesus to come into their heart and life. He stands at the door of your life and he knocks. And he says, if you will hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. If you want Christ to come into your life, if you want your sin forgiven, if you wanna know with confidence that you will go to heaven when you die, if you wanna find the meaning and purpose of your life, respond to this invitation right now. Let's pray. Father, speak to every heart here, listening, watching, wherever they are. If they don't know you, let this be the moment they believe, the moment they receive, the moment that you come and live inside of them and they begin a brand new life. Now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're praying, if you want Jesus to come into your life, if you want him to forgive you of your sin, if you wanna know that when you die, you will go to heaven, I want you to raise your hand up wherever you are and I'm gonna pray for you. God bless you. Raise your hand up high where I can see it, saying, I need Jesus today, pray for me. God bless you, God bless you. Raise your hand up. Everything can change for you today. He's ready to come into your life, but he won't force his way in. If someone's knocking at your door and you want them to come into your home, you have to open the door, right? So Jesus is knocking, you have to answer, yes, Lord, come in. He's knocking, and right now you're sensing that tug deep inside of you, aren't you? Don't resist this. Anybody else, you want Jesus to come into your life, raise your hand up, let me pray for you. Wherever you are, God bless you. Anybody else? God bless each one of you. All right. Now I'm gonna ask every one of you that just raise your hand saying you want Christ to come into your life. I want you to stand to your feet and I'm gonna pray with you. Stand to your feet. You heard me right, just stand up. We're gonna pray and settle this right now. Even if you did not raise your hand, but you want Jesus in your life today, stand up and let me pray with you wherever you are. God bless you that are standing. You won't be alone if you're standing. There's others already standing. Stand up. Maybe you're watching the screen. You stand up. You guys at Harvest Riverside, Harvest Maui, just stand up. Let's pray and settle this right now. You guys watching online, you can pray this prayer as well. I'll wait one more moment. Anybody else, you want Jesus to come into your life, stand up and let's pray together. God bless all of you standing. Now pray this prayer out loud after me. Again, as I pray, pray this prayer out loud. Pray this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you're the Savior who died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. Jesus, come into my life. I turn from my sin. I choose to follow you now as my Savior and my Lord, as my God and my friend. 
Thank you for hearing this prayer and answering this prayer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless each one of you that prayed, amen. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Harvest Ministries, follow this show and consider supporting it. Just go to harvest.org. And to find out how to know God personally, go to harvest.org and click on Know God.